Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in uh, Germany during World War II. He became a political prisoner of Hitler. Uh, the Nazis put him in jail. Ultimately, he was executed. While in bondage, he wrote devotional thoughts and preached sermons and corresponded. He officiated over services. He functioned as a pastor while he was in prison. And he once wrote that the season of Advent, this word that means visitation or arrival, the season of Advent is by necessity a season of waiting. The essence of Advent is waiting. The essence of Advent is waiting. And Bonhoeffer experienced this as he waited to be released from prison. He waited for the war to end. He waited to be reunited with his family. He waited to be uh, reunited with his fiance. And there wasn't much that he could do except pray and preach to fellow prisoners and shepherd souls behind bars and take up his pen to write. And so on one hand, while he felt powerless because he was in prison, on the other hand, well, the words he composed in prison speak to us today. Words like this, life in prison may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this, that, or the other. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. That was his perspective and understanding on Advent. The essence of Advent is waiting. Waiting. Anybody had to wait lately? Some of us have been waiting, waiting for test results, lab tests, qualifying exams, semester grades. Others are waiting for Christmas company. Families on the way. Loved ones will return home from deployment. Still others are waiting for healing, recovery, rehabilitation. Still others are waiting to see someone, a specialist, a prospective employer. Those among us who are in the emergency services vocation, you're waiting for the call to come in. And you've been trained. You're ready. Now all you need is an emergency. And you're ready. Waiting. We're waiting. There's two types of waiting. There's passive waiting. And then there's active waiting. Um, passive waiting is simply when we sit and twiddle our thumbs and tap our feet, and it, it, there's sort of a paralysis that takes over. Passive waiting renders us inactive, helpless victims. But today's scripture, our Advent scripture, speaks of active waiting, expectant waiting, waiting that anticipates the goodness of God. Uh, take your Bibles and meet with me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. 
I want us to consider Luke 2, verses 22 to 38. You'll find that on page 857 of your church Bibles. And in these verses, Luke teaches us how to wait well. What does waiting well look like? And I want us to consider three examples of those who waited well. And as we look at these verses, here's what we're going to see. I'll front load the big idea to us. It's that, it's that we never waste our lives when we actively wait on God. We never waste our lives when we actively wait on God. Oh, Americans hate to wait. But Luke tells us, when you wait actively, expectantly, in readiness, that's never a waste. It's never a waste. And there's three examples here in our text. There's the example of Mary and Joseph. There's the example of Simeon. And there's the example of this beautiful, godly woman, Anna. And we'll see these three examples of people who did not waste their lives because they actively waited on God. Well, let's consider Mary and Joseph first in verse 22. It says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, that is Mary and Joseph, they brought him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So Mary and Joseph are presenting the infant Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. He's about six weeks old. And the Hebrew scriptures call for the parents to perform two rituals. The ritual of the firstborn, redemption, and then the ritual of purification after childbirth. That's, that's what's going on in verses 22 and 23 and 24. In verse 23, Mary and Joseph are offering their firstborn son before the Lord in a ritual that dates back to the time of Moses in Exodus when God preserved the lives of Israel's firstborn under Egyptian slavery. God made a claim on them. Exodus 13.1 says, every firstborn belongs to God. But then the law says that the parents are to redeem or buy back, if you will, the, the firstborn with five shekels of silver. Numbers 18.13. And their redemption price at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels of silver. So, so it's a ritual. It's a ritual of remembrance. What are they remembering? They are remembering, here is who you were, here is what God did, and now here is who you are. That's what that's about. That's the first ritual. And they complied. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24 gives us the second ritual that they performed. It was the the ritual of purification after childbirth. So it's a ceremonial cleansing of the mother of the child. Again, it's a tradition that goes all the way back to the time of Moses. And Leviticus chapter 12 says that a lamb is to be offered. And yet, 
Look at what happened in verse 24. It says they offered, they offered a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So, so while Leviticus 12 stated that a lamb was to be offered, Mary and Joseph offered two pigeons. Why? Because that's all they could afford. Leviticus 12.8 gives an exception. Leviticus 12.8 says, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So that's how we know that Mary and Joseph were a, were a poor couple. They, they, were, they were among the working poor, and they couldn't afford a lamb, but they could afford two pigeons. And that's what verses 22, 23, and 24 are about. Now, that's the, that's the Bible content. Here's the connection for us. The connection for us comes in this repeated phrase. Did you notice it? Verse 22, verse 23, Verse 24, uh, verse 27, do you see it? According to the law, according to the law of Moses, five in fact, in verse 39, it says it once again. Five times it says that Mary and Joseph are in compliance with the word of God. Even in the mundane, routine rituals, they take the Bible seriously. They, they had to wait six weeks to perform this ritual. The ritual didn't take very long, but they can't just drive back home to Nazareth because <laughs> they're in Jerusalem. <laughs> okay? They're going to have to stick around to perform this 10-minute ritual. Yeah. Why? Because that's according to the law of the Lord, and they're going to take that seriously. It's ordinary, it's mundane, it's a routine act of obedience. Stay with me, stay with me. Much of what happens in our life is mundane, isn't it? It's get up, it's walk the dog, fix the coffee, shower, shave, dress, get the kids going, breakfast, skim the news if you have time, drive to school, drive to work, go home, have dinner, evening, bedtime, do it all over again. Oh, God, give me something grander. No, that is what God has given us. This is what God has given us. Um, Matt Redmond has written a book called The God of the Mundane. He said, you know, we think the small, mundane, ordinary things we do each and every day are worth nothing before God because they are worth nothing before the gods of this world. We may flirt with greatness, but the fact is, for the Christian and non-Christian, ordinary is the divine order of the day for the vast majority of us. Kids, bills, coupons, cable, home repair, gas in the tank, church attendance, inexpensive pleasures, discount shopping, family reunions, that's what we're made of. 10,000 little moments. 10,000 little moments the transforming work of grace operates in those 10,000 little moments, church, far more than it does in a series of two or three life-altering events. Okay? 
And the character and the quality of your life will be defined by those 10,000 little decisions and little desires and little words and little actions that you make every day. And if God is not sovereign over those 10,000 little moments, then he's not sovereign over your life because that's where you live. It's in these small, seemingly insignificant moments where he's delivering his redemptive promise that he made to you one day at a time. So, so waiting obediently in 10,000 little moments readies us for the unexpected, for the unexpected. And that's where we consider what happened next in these verses. We go from Mary and Joseph to Simeon. Hmm. While Mary and Joseph were led by the law of God, Scripture tells us, beginning in verse 25, about a man named Simeon who was led by the Spirit of God. And look what Luke's doing here. He's showing that there's continuity between the Holy Spirit and, and the Holy Scriptures. See? Verse 25 says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So we don't really know specifically what his vocation was. Some uh, scholars say that he was a priest. Others there was definitely, he definitely gave a prophecy, as we shall see a little later, but, but his vocation, what he did to put bread on the table, is not of concern to Luke. What's concerning to Luke is his heart and his character and his righteousness and his piety and the fact that um, uh, the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he's waiting, waiting for the consolation. What's that? Well, that's comfort. That's relief. Israel was waiting to be out from beneath Roman occupation. Waiting for the arrival of the Lord's Messiah. The anointed one of God who would liberate Israel. And so this righteous, devout, waiting man had been notified by the Holy Spirit that he would not taste death before he had set eyes on the Messiah you will see the Lord's anointed deliverer, Simeon. Just be ready. Talk about 10,000 moments of mundane. I don't know how old he was when the Holy Spirit told him of this. It probably wasn't the week before it actually happened. I picture Simeon going to the temple in his 40s, and, you know, he's waiting, and then... You know, he's looking, for, looking around, and then he's in his 50s, and what about this one? What about this one? No. What about that one? No. What about this one? Then he's in his 60s, and then he starts collecting Social Security, and then he needed a cane, and, you know, then, then, then he, he was in a walker, and, you know, he was just moving really slow, and... I remember when my grandfather was in his late 80s, he was living at home with us and with my mom and dad at the time. And, 
to help him up across the room, and it just took him forever to get across the living room. And he finally paused halfway across the living room and looked up at me and said, I hope there's not a train coming. <laughs> That's my picture of Simeon. He looks just like Louis Roscoe Phillips. <laughs> 10,000 moments of mundane. But then one day the Holy Spirit moved him to go into the temple courts. Now listen, we're not talking about the church foyer here, okay? Because the temple courts, it was a 17-acre compound. Think Memorial Stadium. I mean, the courts were clogged with crowds. And Simeon's eyes are scanning the courtyard and poor young couple. There's many couples. They're entering. And this couple enters with a newborn son. They don't look any different than the other couples who had come. But that was when the Spirit spoke. Simeon, there, go. 10,000 times he asked, is this the one? And 10,000 times he heard no. But on the 10,001st time, yes, yes. And Simeon gasps and he intercepts them on their way to do the rituals that we just talked about. This stranger approaches Mary and Joseph. May I hold your baby And the Bible says that this righteous old man, verse 28 says, he took him up in his arms. That actually is a, is a harsh verb, took him up. Actually, the verb is this. He received him in his arms. Received him in his arms. Simeon has been called the God receiver. The God receiver. His weight was not wasted. This little boy with poor parents and rough Galilean accents. This little boy who looks so ordinary. He is he's the anointed one. He is the chosen one. He is the Lord's Messiah. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in his life. And Simeon breaks out in song, verse 29. Now I can die. Lord, now, now, you are letting your servant depart in peace. I'm not afraid to die. I can die now. I can die now. According to your word. For my eyes, verse 30, have seen your salvation. You understand this? The salvation is not a set of principles. It's, salvation is not a series of lessons. Salvation is not a religious curriculum. Salvation is a someone. Salvation is a savior. A savior. My eyes have seen your salvation. And oh, circle that word salvation. This is a beautiful word here. So, in the first century, Greek was the universal language, right? 
And so there was a translation of the Old Testament in the Greek. And the word here in verse 30 for salvation is used over a hundred times in the Greek Old Testament. And many of those occasions, the word salvation is actually translated peace offering. My eyes have seen your peace offering. Isn't that beautiful? Which you have prepared in the presence of your people. Now get this. Simeon will never see Jesus walk on water. He will never hear Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. He will never witness Christ say, Lazarus, come forth. He won't. But he knows who this child is. Verse 32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So in the, in the most Jewish place of all Israel, Simeon prophesies that Jesus is Lord of the nations. Jesus is not just light for one people, but for all, rich, poor, young, old, Hebrew, Gentile. He didn't come for just one ethnic group. He came for every ethnic group in every life situation. Lonely, rejected, victim, perpetrator, forgotten, discouraged, depressed, failure, success, tangled in a sin struggle. Christmas is for you. For salvation has come. He's light. He's glory. He's hope. He's Jesus. The Lord saves. That's what his name means. No wonder. Verse 33 says, And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. I mean, it's like every day they're getting more news about their son. And then, and then they... Then they get even more news. Simeon leans into Mary specifically. Do you see that? Verse 34, he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. In other words, Jesus will be a polarizing person. There's no neutrality when it comes to Christ. Jesus reveals the nature of your heart. And no one can walk away from Jesus unaffected. In a, in a university community like ours, it's very easy to think of Jesus as this gifted intellect or a fantastic teacher or philosopher. But is that what Jesus said about himself? Read the Gospels. Here's what Christ said about himself. On judgment day, whether you rise or fall depends on whether or not you know, know me or love me. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Eat my body. Drink my life. <laughs> the Gospels do not portray Jesus as someone who can help you reach your human potential. <laughs> Rather, the Gospels say, here is your king. So let me get personal. What is Jesus to you? Not who is he. What is he to you? Is he life or death? 
Is he heaven or hell? Is he joy or sorrow? Is he guilt or forgiveness? It's one or the other. Is he eternal life or eternal separation? What is Jesus to you? That's what Simeon is getting at. In Revelation chapter 3 concerning the church at Laodicea, Jesus told these lukewarm believers, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Neutrality makes me vomit, Jesus says. Who, who says that? Jesus said that. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. In other words, he wants you to choose. He wants you to make a decision. This is your son, Simeon said. And he wasn't done yet. He says even, he says even harder words in verse 35. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Hmm. What a terrible word to have to say to a mother of an infant child. Mary, you will love this boy more deeply than you love any human being on earth, but in three, in three decades' time, you will stand helplessly as a grief-stricken witness at a gruesome crucifixion. And in that place of naked misery, you will watch your son die the most terrible death. You will see the sun go dark. You will feel the earth shake, and a sword will pierce your heart. Listen, Jesus can only be light by entering darkness. He can only save sinners by bearing wrath. And he can only be glorious with the glory of God's self-giving sacrificial love. The, the door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. Christ has come from the outside. And Simeon saw this. And his life mission was to remind Mary the identity of her son and what he came to do. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to destroy the work of Satan. Wasn't really the life she sought, was it? But it was the life God gave her. And she waited compliantly and obediently, and Simeon waited expectantly. And then we're introduced to this woman of God. Luke tells us of this prophetess, Anna, who, who waited cooperatively. Verse 36 says that there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Why those details? Well, those are investigative details that we would expect Luke, who told us back in chapter 1, verse 2, that he was putting his gospel together based on eyewitness accounts. And, and in other words, Luke is saying, she's a real person. She's a real person. Here's who her dad name was, and this is what tribe she was from. And Anna serves as a witness to substantiate the encounter between Simeon and the Holy Family. And she's advanced in years, Luke tells us. She, she had been married for seven years, but then her husband died. And verse 37 tells us that she was, she was 84 years old. Now, I'll just tell you, she was either 84 years old or she'd been a widow 84 years. So, 
and I've studied several top scholars on, well, which is it? And they confidently say, I don't know. <laughs> so here is this, this stately, godly woman who has lived a long, long time. She did not remarry. She elected to remain single and celibate. She dedicated herself to worship, to fasting, to prayer day and night. And she longed for Israel's redemption. She loved her homeland. And she prayed for Israel's redemption. And by periodically fasting, Anna demonstrated how hungry her soul was for God's Messiah to come and to make the world right. Sin and misery are painful. Death hurts. Christ's physical absence is notable. Come, Lord Jesus, and make this mess right. And for decades, decades, she prayed and fasted. And, and God rewarded her in this. Anna witnessed the interaction with Simeon and the Holy Family. And words of gratitude to God spilled out of her mouth. I mean, she had divine insight, which was hidden from the crowds. And once she sees Jesus and Mary and Joseph and Simeon, I mean, she just starts thanking God, giving thanks to God, verse 38. And then she begins to speak of him to all who were waiting. I mean, here she is, this, this woman who's either 84 or 105. I don't know. Take your pick. But man, she's preaching away. I want that energy. I want that spirit. Effective waiting does not require the life you wish you had. It only requires cooperation with the life God has given. Let me say that again. Effective waiting, active waiting, does not require the life you wish you had. It only requires cooperation with the life God has given you. Would you please remember that this week? A meaningful Christmas experience does not require a spouse or children or grandchildren or any other Norman Rockwell painting. And someone might say, Randy, that's easy for you to say. I'm not saying it. She's saying it. I mean, this is the Christmas portrait of waiting. A young married couple, an old man, a single woman advanced in years, godliness, devotion, piety, longing for God to do something, and all of them are orbiting around this remarkable baby. You know, these verses have been titled The Presentation of Jesus at the temple, but what if it were the other way around? Maybe Jesus is the one presenting them. Jesus, who would later claim to be the temple of the living God. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. I am the meeting place between God and humanity. I am the peace offering of God. And we gather here every week in a ritual. This is a ritual 
a ritual of worship, a ritual of song, a ritual of scripture and prayer and community, a ritual of meeting around the Lord's table, which we will shortly. And we're reminded that it's not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy that we gather. We gather, we worship, we pray, we fast. Shall we long for Jesus less than Anna? And there are times when we tire. And we want to say, is this really worth it? Is it really worth it? Oh, church family, our waiting is never a waste when we wait expectantly for Christ. So then, Jude 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Waiting now, waiting at 84, waiting at 104. Keep waiting. He will not fail you. Listen, there's an old church cemetery with an old oak tree that has a massive oak trunk. And there's a gravestone with one word that reflects the faith of a grandmother who lived by grace through faith in the living Christ and his resurrection. And do you know what the word on that gravestone simply says? Waiting. 